Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah. I uh, have not taught from the Old Testament on Sunday morning in the seven or so years that I have been uh, teaching on Sunday morning. I have, over the last seven years, talked quite a bit from the Old Testament. Um, a matter of fact, on Wednesdays, we've gone through the entire New Testament. So those of you who think I go through the New Testament really slowly, the evenings taught through the entire New Testament in the last seven years. And a lot of the Old Testament on Sunday evenings, but some of us are serving in other capacities on Sunday evenings or Wednesdays. Some of us, uh, those are not a part of our regular uh, services that we attend. So uh, I really feel that uh, perhaps... Um, it's a good thing now to turn our attention to some Old Testament texts. Uh, I, my pattern for teaching these Old Testament texts, I'll tell you, is a little bit different from uh, how I teach through uh, New Testament instruction. Much of the Old Testament that we have is narrative. It's story. It's us seeing God interact with His people and with, frankly, people who are not His people. And so I tend to move at a quicker pace, so we will not be spending a year or probably even several months in the book of Jonah. We will move through it quickly, and I hope it's a blessing to you, but you're going to have to pay attention as we go through it. So let's begin reading in verse 1 of Jonah chapter 1. We read, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. There is much in this opening paragraph worth consideration. First, a little of the background that we reviewed uh, last week. Jonah is a prophet of the Lord in northern Israel. Israel is a divided kingdom. Uh, they are not the unified nation that they were at the time of David, at the time of Solomon. After Solomon, the nation splits in two. The northern kingdom becomes uh, the kingdom of Israel, or so-called Israel. It is the predominant land mass. It is where the majority of the tribes had their family allotments carved out for them. The southern kingdom of Judah, however, is where the temple was. It was where Jerusalem was. It was only the homeland of a few tribes. And so the northern kingdom becomes Israel. The southern kingdom becomes Judah and Jerusalem and the temple. The northern kingdom is afraid that if they continue in the religious observances that God had commanded them, that the people will become disloyal to this new kingdom in the north. Why? Because in God's law they are commanded to go south to Jerusalem, to the temple, and present sacrifices. Everyone was to present themselves three times a year in regular observance, gathered in Jerusalem, the city of God, gathered at the temple of God, worshiping the God of Israel, and they were afraid in the north. If our people repeatedly go down to the southern kingdom of Judah to worship our God there over and over and over again, will not their heart become somewhat pulled down towards the southern kingdom? Will they not with a plan? We are made here in the north. Will they not migrate to the southern kingdom? And so they come up with a plan. We are going to keep much of the same laws, rules, customs, even the methodology of how we worshipped God in Jerusalem. But instead of worshipping God in Jerusalem, we are going to worship God in the north, and we are going to do so uh, 
in the presentation of these two golden calves. And golden calves became the symbol of idolatrous worship throughout the northern kingdom. And this happens almost immediately after the reign of Solomon. Well, if you're going to worship golden calves and you're not going to worship as the Lord prescribed in the southern kingdom, you're going to need some new priests to do that. Because the the faithful priests are not going to be on board with that. So they start to call new priests and a new priesthood, not according to the qualifications laid out in the law of God, but according to their own deductions, their own wisdom, people who they feel would make good work of the matter. And so they do it. It doesn't take very long before the northern kingdom has run away from the laws and commands of God. They are behaving immorally and irrationally. and, And here we are some 100 years after that, Civil war after that civil break wasn't really a fight, wasn't really a conflict. And the northern kingdom is in bad shape spiritually. And nevertheless, we read, as we did last week, that Jonah was a prophet of God in the northern kingdom of Israel, sent to the king, Jeroboam II, to tell the king that it would be a time of great prosperity and border expansion in Israel despite their sin. That was Jonah's message. That's the truth. For years, decades even, Israel in the north had prospered under the reign of Jeroboam. He had done a lot of good economic things. They had had military success. Their enemies were at bay. In fact, the expansion of the northern kingdom under Jeroboam II is the closest the kingdom ever came to the expansion promised of God to the people of Israel. It was huge, the borders, and everything was well. And for their enemies, things were bad. Assyrian. Uh, The Assyrians, their main military threat. This period of time in the Assyrian Empire was a time of great conflict. They had famine, they had pestilence, they had plagues. The Assyrian Empire, this great and mighty empire, was suffering. In fact, they had had two occurrences. One being a, a complete eclipse that would have suggested to the Assyrians that their gods or the god was not happy with them and that this time of economic downturn was part of uh, the god's judgment against them, uh, magnified by this sign in the heavens, this eclipse that they experienced. And they had another fantastic experience, a massive earthquake that shook the city, that destroyed buildings, that brought down walls and structures. Two signs to the Assyrians that they would have interpreted that God, our gods, are not happy with us. And then we have the word of the Lord come to Jonah with the new message here in verse 1. And in verse 2, the message is described. Arise, go to Nineveh, the great Assyrian city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Uh, So Jonah is not given a message of great prosperity to the Assyrians. You know, I mentioned last week, if you have to go deliver a message, I think most of us would choose to go and deliver a good message as opposed to a bad message. Most of us like to be the bearer of good news, not the bearer of bad news. If you take some sadistic pleasure in being the bearer of bad news, you know, just keep it to yourself. The rest of us do not enjoy doing that sort of thing. And here Jonah is given a message, and it is not good news. It is bad news when he says, you are going to go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it. This is all bad for Jonah. It's bad news because he doesn't want to go to Assyria. Who would want to go to the capital city of an Assyrian empire, to the great city of an Assyrian empire, where they were your arch rivals, they were your enemies? Let me just be clear here. Assyria represented to Israel what we might call an existential threat. Now, I say that's a big word, and I, I would prefer not to write that. What does that mean? It's very simple. The first part of existential means to exist. 
This is the kind of conflict where if Assyria had beaten Israel, they would not simply take some land and take some territory and enforce some new economic policies. They would wipe them out entirely. The Jewish people during the Holocaust faced an existential threat. Do you understand the difference? We do. Existential threat is the kind of threat that if it has success over you, threatens your very existence. People don't come out of this and survive. The Assyrians, when they conquered a people, enslaved, murdered, killed, and then totally dispersed all the people throughout all their vast lands in, in forms of servitude so that they would never re-collaborate together. They would never come together again in another community. It would be the end of those people. That was the Assyrian strategy of dominance. So, of course, Jonah does not want to go there. You wouldn't want to go there either. There is really no nation on the earth right now that we generally look at and say, well, they present an existential threat to us. People who say things like that, you look at it and you say, man, that, is, that person might be exaggerating a little bit. I mean, we have a military and we have some missiles and we have an army. And it's not to say that, you know, we couldn't be wiped out, but we're not just living on pins and needles terrified that any second now we're going to be wiped out. We have some reason to be confident if, if we were in some sort of conflict. There are very few nations on the planet that we would look at and say could even potentially represent to our great country an existential threat. A few, but not many. This is what Israel faced. An existential threat with Assyria. He didn't want to go to Nineveh. Their great city. You know, an interesting thing about Nineveh. Nineveh is described to us in the Bible as this phenomenal city. It makes its first appearance in the book of Genesis. Built by Nimrod, that great dictator. Uh, it, it, Nineveh was a, a huge city of ancient lore. It was almost like the great city of Atlantis. Have you ever been to Atlantis? You haven't. I'll just make that clear. Atlantis is a fabled city, okay? It's a, it's a mythological city. And, and do you know... By the time the Greek Empire came around, which is not long after the time of Jonah, Nineveh had already been so completely and thoroughly destroyed and covered that even Alexander the Great walked right over top of the ruins of Nineveh and did not realize where he was standing. Everyone, all Greek historians, thought that it was just a mythical city because of the great proportions that it was described at. And clearly the location is easy enough to interpret from the Bible. And no one could find it. And people thought it was a made-up city for thousands of years. In fact, people who wanted to attack the Bible would often attack the Bible on this front. Because the Bible was supposed to be God's inerrant word, God's rightful word, God's infallible word. And yet it talked about this great city of Nineveh that all the world knew didn't ever exist. It was like Atlantis. It was a mythological city. Even the famous Greek historians who wrote a few hundred years after the time of Jonah didn't talk about Nineveh as if it were some real city. Alexander the Great didn't think it existed. And then, of course, 150 years ago, they find it. They find it. It's been in the news recently. Have you heard of, uh, of what the, 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 the ISIS forces did in the city of Mosul? That's, that's right there. That's ancient Nineveh. They excavated it. And it's just as huge and as massive as they found. You could race chariots along the walls. The walls were so big and thick and tall. Chariot races along the top of the walls surrounding. The walls were so expansive. And the river running near it so, so, so robust that in times of a siege they could support their people with crops grown within their walls for years. This was great Nineveh. 
Now, there are exaggerations about Nineveh and ancient historical writings that talk about walls 100 feet tall, and they weren't quite that tall, but they were big. I talk about towers 200 feet tall. The towers were like 100 feet tall. Still, you know, I saw a picture of Jeff Klein up in a crane. He said he was a couple hundred feet up in the air. You get about 100 feet up in the air, that's up there. That's up there. This was great Nineveh. Nothing like it at the time. Not even Babylon was like it at the time. Nebuchadnezzar had not done his great work. And here a prophet of Israel is told to go there. And what's the message? The message, you know, it's not precisely repent. repent. We can assume that perhaps that would be a logical outpouring of it. But the, the message is, cry out against it for their wickedness has come up before me. The idea, the, the phraseology, their wickedness has come up before me is God saying, they are at the point of judgment. I can't take this anymore. I will not allow this anymore. Cry out against it. Not many of us like that part of the gospel. We, we tend to avoid that. Not many churches like that part of the gospel. I think what you find to sin, especially sin in modern church culture, is uh, some, some references to sin, especially sins that everyone is pretty much on board dealing with. There are some brave people who talk clearly about sin, but for the most part, that is not the general tendencies of the instructions in our local churches, dealing with sin, crying out against sin. And then you find out how a church really feels about sin when someone begins to commit it openly in rebellion against the Lord. Because at that point, the church is told to deal with it. And you find out what a church really believes. When a pastor has been given the task to go to someone who is in a sin and to talk to that person about their sin and to warn that person about the judgment of their sin, I tell you what, that is an uncomfortable position to be in. We need to acknowledge that. Talking about sin is not comfortable. It, the Bible never suggests that it's comfortable. The Bible never suggests that people are going to hear you talk about sin or cry out against sin and be like, you know, that they raise some great points. That's not the tone and tenor of any of this. You know, John the Baptist came preaching against sin, right? That was his message. We can see, you can see the message of John the Baptist in, in the beginning of the Gospels. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. And he's warning about all sorts of terrible things. He's saying, you know, trees are going to be cut down and burned up and thrown into the fire. He's talking about people. You know, and, 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 and Jesus comes and he's preaching about repentance and he's talking about, you know, a place where the, the worm doesn't die and, and, and a, a Gehenna where the fire never ceases and, and where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And, and people didn't like those messages. They didn't like that. It got John beheaded by Herod preaching that kind of a message. You know, it wasn't comfortable. It's not easy. But if you don't talk about sin, you can't talk about God. It's, it's become commonplace for us to substitute our crying out against sin for platitudes and phrases that seem to take the edge off of this, uh, the discussion. In other words, you'll hear people say things like, what we really need is we re you, know, you, you really need to come to God or you really need to give your life to God. What do I need to be saved? Well, you need to, you need to accept Jesus as your Savior. Okay, if that is the phraseology that we're going to use to broadly encompass what the gospel does in a person's life, all right. But if that is the phraseology that we use to present the gospel into someone's life, you are missing the mark. 
What does that even mean? Accept Jesus into my heart. What does that mean? What does it mean? Give my life to God. There is no presentation of the gospel that can begin anywhere else than the fact that we are sinners in need of salvation. Apart from that, what do we need to be saved from? What is the great threat presented to us? What is our existential threat, if not sin and the destruction coming to us in eternal hell? Why do I need Jesus? What is He doing up there on the cross? Why should I give my life to Him, place my faith in Him, obey Him, and do what He says? If we don't face an existential threat, then there is nothing to be saved from. Our existence has to be threatened for salvation to make any sense. And this is the heart of the gospel. It is, de- is dealing with sin. It's dealing with sin. You know, the prophets come, and they have to deal with sin in the Old Testament. And Jesus comes, John the Baptist comes, the apostles come in the New Testament, and they have to deal with sin. And that is the message that Jonah is given. Now, we could turn to chapter 4 and see exactly why Jonah doesn't want to go there and preach this message about sin. But we'll get there in time. Instead, let's just be, even those of us who know the story, let's just be amazed at the ignorance of verse 3. Okay? But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now, you would expect a prophet to know better than this, right? Right? You would expect someone who received, someone in the privileged position of receiving the word of God. I don't know how Jonah received the word of God. I don't know if he received the word of God in a vision in his bed at night. I don't know if he audibly heard the voice of God. I'm not a prophet, not in that sense. I've never heard the voice of God. I've read the word of God. I've never had a vision from God. I I have God's revelation here. I don't know however Jonah experienced this, but you would think someone who had experienced this would know better than to try to flee from the presence of the Lord. But he doesn't. It says he went down to Joppa, which means he left Israel first. He wasn't trying to hide. See, Jonah would have been a pretty well-known figure, it stands to reason, in Israel as a prophet of God. It's not like you just run into those every once in a while. He was recorded in the book of the Kings. So he flees his area. He goes to Joppa, a, a pagan city, a pagan place. And from Joppa... We're told he finds a ship going to Tarshish. Now there is all sorts of commentary on where Tarshish is because there are several port cities called Tarshish. Tarshish might be a, 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 a more synonymous with, with what we would, would say he fled to Portland. You know, there are lots of Portlands. There are lots of, because there are lots of places along lots of coasts that people decided let's call this Portland because there will be a port here, right? So there's a lot of historical debate about the Tarshish where he was going to. Most people think that it refers to a place near Portugal and Spain. So if you're looking from Israel all the way on the other side of Europe to Portugal and Spain, that's quite a ways away. Some people put this all the way up in the British Isles because there's references in Tarshish to the place of tin and that's what Great Britain is, is, is famous for. Either way, he's not simply fleeing to a near Mideastern locale. He is going in his mind 
to the other side of the world. You understand that? This is, this is a fleeing as far as you could possibly go. And, and you know, I hate it that most of our, 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 our imagery about Jonah for, for many of us comes down to uh, our, 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 our recollections of a pickle in a fishing boat, you know, from a, from a cartoon, and we uh, song, and, and okay, I, I won't go down that rabbit trail here, but I'll just say, this is no rowboat across the ocean. This is, this is a cargo ship. This is a trading ship. This is a ship with mariners trained to make a journey that would often take the better portion of two years. This was a long voyage. And let me tell you, those of you who work in shipping and receiving know that anytime you ship something, it has to be worth the money that you're going to pay to ship it. Which means you're not in a little rowboat. You're in a huge cargo ship that is meant to haul as much as it possibly can from the place that you're leaving from and from the place that you'll be retired. I pay you. You make money on these things. And Jonah has secured passage by paying for a spot on the boat. So he goes down into this huge boat. And you can envision in your mind if you want all the cargo bundled up. And notice the language here. That, you know, the Old Testament, when you read the, the, narrative, the, the narrative of the Old Testament, you went across this language over and over again. Notice this. It says, but Jonah arose. First of all, uh, the, the language in verse 1 is that he go up to Nineveh, okay? Uh, but, but verse 3, but Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa. He found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare, and he went down into the ship. And those of us who know where this story is going, he's going to go down into the sea. Because not a single word in the Old Testament is there by chance or circumstance. We get the picture of Jonah's spiritual situation and the language presented to us in his physical journey. He is to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. What a terrible thing. I was a little emotional about it, to be honest with you. That someone who would have the privilege of being in the presence of the Lord would run to flee from the presence of the Lord. What a terrible thing. Turn to Psalm 139. Let us now recognize the reality of our situation, be it for better or worse. In Psalm 139, this is your condition. Psalm 139, a psalm of David beginning in verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. What does God find when he searches and knows a man or a woman? Righteous behavior, conduct, thoughts, integrity, infallibility, rock-solid conviction. Is that what is in the heart of a man and a woman? No. You have searched me and known me. That ought to be a sobering thought for you wherever you sit this morning. You can hide a lot of things from other people. You really can. You can hide thoughts, bitterness, angers, frustrations, discontentments, imaginations. You can hide all that from other people. 
You can hide a lot of conduct from other people, stuff that never leaves the walls of your home, that never leaves the walls of your office, that never leaves the walls of your life. And the outside world is oblivious aside from a few on the inner circle who come into contact with it from time to time. You can hide nothing from God. David knew it. You have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You know what I think that means? You know my thoughts long before they come to me. You comprehend my path and my lying down. You know what I put my hand to work to do and you know when I rest. And you are acquainted with all my ways. There is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. Wow. You have hedged me behind and before. In other words, you have set the limits of where I go in this world. <laughs> I don't know my own limits. You know them, and they exist because of you. And you have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. You will never know yourself like God knows you. You say, well, how can that be? I'll tell you how. Your heart is deceptively wicked. You will always come away with a better opinion of yourself, with a skewed version of the events. God does not. You'll look at your life and you'll imagine, well, I'm not capable of that because I've never done it before. But God knows what you're capable of long before the thought ever enters your brain. Where can I go from your spirit? Here's Jonah's question, Jonah's dilemma. Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, the place of the dead, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, if I get on the wings of a bird and flee as far away as I can off into the ocean. Sound familiar? Even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness will follow me, I'll be covered up by, by the, the cover of night. Even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. Now, here's a verse that I wish we would understand. And perhaps we do. For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. And in your book they all were written, the days fashioned before me when as yet there were none of them. You framed me together, parts of the earth, the lowest part of human development in my mother's womb. You framed me together when I was the lowest form of human life. Not only did you frame me together, but you knew me. All of my days were fashioned before me, recorded in this book. All of my days, though they none of which had I experienced. And in your book, they all were written, the days fashioned before me, when as yet none of them had come to pass. 
This is the intimacy of which our God knows you and every person around you. We see then a sense of the absurdity of fleeing from the presence of God. And perhaps we see a few things more. Back to Jonah, chapter 1, verse 4. But the Lord, Yahweh, this is Yahweh. Whenever you see in the Old Testament the word Lord in all capital letters in the English, it is the word Yahweh, the unspoken name of God, which among the scribes of Israel was treated with such reverence that they would not include any vows. They simply wrote this Yahweh in here. Our God has a name. Did you know that? He does. Yahweh. But the Lord, but Yahweh, sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. It's a peculiar thing for God to do, don't you think? I mean, if Jonah doesn't want to do what God tells him to do, certainly he can find someone else to do it. Isn't that right? It's true. If Jonah doesn't know uh, if he can follow through on God's command, can't God find someone else to follow through? He could, but he doesn't. Yet the first thing we see in God's character is the calamity of his sin and his knowledge of our sin. The second thing we see in God's character is that he demands obedience from his servants. Let me tell you something. It is a frightening thing to be a servant of God. This is what it means when we talk about the fear of the Lord in a positive manner. God demands obedience. Let me just read to you. You could turn there or not. It's up to you. But from Luke chapter 14. Let me just read a few verses there from you. This is Jesus explaining this to us. Listen to this. It says, Now great multitudes went with him, and he turned and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. The extent to which God demands devotion from his servants so far surpasses the devotion that they have to everything else in their life that it would appear to them despise, neglect, if it means conflict with what their God has demanded from them. What a hard thing to hear. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, here's a series of questions, think about this, which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he's laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and he was not able to finish. Or what king going to war against another king does not sit down first? And consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. This is the surrender that the Lord God requires of his people. Total obedience. Total obedience. You do not get to tell God what you're willing to accept 
from His Word and His instruction and His command. You do not get to draw the line. In the book of the Kings, we were told that Jonah was a servant of the Most High God who came to Jeroboam II. That's not a title. That is a possession to be a servant of the Most High God. And the Most High God does not allow His servants to get away with outright disobedience. So God sends a great wind and there is a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship was broken about. When you, Christian, disobey God, you invite His judgment and that's what Jonah is going to experience. Verse 5, the mariners were afraid. Every man cried out to his God. These were not God-fearing men. These were, these were pagans. So every man cried out to his God so that they threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. We've talked about that, right? Do you know how desperate you have to be to throw your entire reason for this voyage, this, this year of your life that you've committed yourself, into the ocean and watch it sink? So they throw the cargo in to lighten the load. But Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. He was on the very bottom of the boat. If it's a three-tier boat, he's on the third tier at the bottom and he is fast asleep in the midst of a chaotic storm that has everyone else at panic. And you say, man, Jonah sure is at peace with his decision to flee from the presence of the Lord, isn't he? Not the kind of peace that you and I need. Don't fool yourself into thinking that because you have neglected what God has called you to and because you have chased after other things and gone in another direction and you can sleep at night and you can justify it and you can feel good about yourself. Don't think that the peace that you have is from God when you are in disobedience and rebellion against His will. There is a peace that comes from washing your hands of your responsibilities and walking away. It's a peace that leads people to divorce. It's a peace that leads people to drop their weapons in the middle of combat and run away. It's a peace that leads people at the end of basketball and football games to throw in the towel and quit trying. It's a peace that we're all too familiar with, quitting. And it just feels like... I just am sick of this. I just, I just want to be done with it. I, I'm tired of the struggle, and so I'm just, I'm not, I've had it. I'm not going to do it anymore. Don't think that whatever peace you manufacture for yourself, when you neglect and disobey the clear calling of God, don't think that that peace is some affirmation that everything is all right. It's not. He is fast asleep. So the captain. You know, not a, a, a fellow oarsman, but the captain. I don't know how he found Jonah. Ha! I mean, Jonah's down at the bottom of the boat asleep. They've thrown everything out, and somehow Jonah has managed to sleep through the chaos of that. And the captain, perhaps just disturbed that anyone could possibly sleep through this without making petition to the gods. The captain came to him and said, What do you mean, sleeper? Now that is an English translation of some cleaned up Old Testament Hebrew there. But you know what this is really like. If you are in a panicking situation and you look around and somebody just laying around not doing anything, you know the kind of thing that you say to somebody like, Man, get up! You know, wake up! The captain is mad. 
that Jonah would have the audacity to pretend that everything is fine. What kind of moron is this? Doesn't he realize the gravity of the... Arise! Call on your God! Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. No point is his God called Yahweh. Just, look, everybody should be called... You know, there's no atheist in a foxhole. You've heard that saying before. I don't know if it's actually true. I'm sure there have been some atheists in a foxhole. But why not give it a shot at this point in time? And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. You know, there are desperate times. Call for desperate measures. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. The lot is cast in the lap of the Lord, so says the Old Testament. What does that mean? You roll the dice, God knows the number before, you know, there is no such thing as chance. Stop rolling. You say, well, I lose every time I roll the dice. I think he's trying to tell you something. Stop rolling the dice. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Of course it did. Then they said to him, please tell us, for whose cause is this trouble upon us? What is your occupation? Who are you, man? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And what people are you? They don't know anything about him. That's why they don't say call to Yahweh. They don't know anything about this guy. He's just, he paid the money. He's got a spot on the boat. So he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear, it's capitalized, right? Yahweh, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Now, they would have known the Hebrews and they would have known Yahweh. Everyone knew Yahweh. Everyone knew Israel and everyone knew Israel's God. Israel's God had conquered the Canaanites. Israel's God had seen the walls of Jericho crumble. Israel's God had given David some supernatural power to conquer enemies. Everyone knew Yahweh. And when he says, I fear Yahweh, that has an impression on them. You know, you go around and you say, I worship Jesus Christ. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. You know, a lot of people just kind of shrug their shoulders. They know who you're talking about. Everybody knows the God of the Bible. But they kind of, you know, they shrug their shoulders because they're not in a foxhole. <laughs> they're not in a foxhole. Their life's not in danger. Oh, yeah, you know Yahweh? Okay, yeah, whatever. Heard a lot about him. You want to sit down for lunch, we'll have a three-hour debate about him, you know? But you go to somebody whose life is on the line, and you say, I'm a follower of Jesus, of the God of the Bible. And you might find a different tone. Certainly found one of them. It says, verse 10, Then the men were exceedingly afraid. <laughs> and they said to him, Why have you done this? For the men knew that he had fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. He gave them the rundown. You know, it's not here in the text, the conversation. But he told them what had happened. Why have you done this? Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may be calm for us? For the sea was growing more tempestuous. If it was bad before, it's getting worse. This is not, not dying down. He said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea, and then the sea will be calm for you, for I know that this great tempest is because of me. What a noble thing to do. What a noble thing to do. You know something? This is not repentance. Let's imagine what repentance would look like. You know what? Turn the ship around. I'm going to pray and repent of my sin. Take me back to Joppa. And I'll go to Nineveh and I'll say what God told me to say because this is all my fault. 
That's not what Jonah says. He's willing to die. He's not willing to live. <laughs> He's paid to die. He'll sacrifice himself. He's found a cause he'll die for. You know what that cause is? Patriotism. Love of his nation. Hatred of his enemies. He'll die for that. He'll die to save these sailors. He will not offer himself a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is his reasonable service. That's Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Don't think because you muster up the courage to say, I would die for my faith, I would become a martyr. Don't think that that somehow gives you a green thumbs up, hey, a good job, well done, my good and faithful servant, in the way you're living for the Lord. That's not how this works. Judas felt bad and hung himself. Repentance is the acknowledgement of your fault, acknowledgement of your rebellion, acknowledgement of your shortcoming, and devotion to God, presenting yourself to Him as a living sacrifice, not a dead sacrifice, not some animal slaughtered on the altar. God could do that to you whenever He wanted to. He wants a living sacrifice that is holy and acceptable to Him. That is your reasonable service. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. To do what He's called you to do. To do it faithfully. To do it well. To do it with passion and devotion to Him. To do it out of love for Him. To do it out of gratefulness for Him. To do it out of faith in Him. That is not what Jonah does. He says, I can tell you how this will get better. Just put me out of my misery. Throw me into the ocean and everything will be fine. This is not repentance. Jonah is a long way from repentance. How far? He is about... I don't know how deep the ocean is. He is definitely three days away from repentance. We'll say that. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to return to land, but they could not. What do they do? They pick them up and throw them in the ocean? These vile pagans that they are. No, they're more honorable than Jonah. They don't want to throw them in the ocean. <laughs> they're not going to kill a guy. Come on. So they rode all the harder. But the sea, they, they could not get to land, so the sea continued to grow more tempestuous. Maybe they thought, hey, this guy doesn't want to repent. We'll take him back to Joppa anyway, you know, but the sea got worse and worse. Verse 14, therefore they cried out to the Lord and said, we pray, O Lord, please, notice now, Yahweh. They are calling on the name of Yahweh now. Not some random God. Not some golden cow. We pray, Yahweh, please do not let us perish for this man's life and do not charge us with innocent blood. It's a fascinating concept in the Old Testament. The fear that even pagan people have when they know that the shedding of innocent blood invites the judgment of God. How many millions of babies have died because Americans have no sensitivity to the shedding of innocent blood? And they say, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. You have done this. We have tried not to do this, but you, you have brought this about. Indeed he had. So they picked up Jonah and they threw him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared Yahweh exceedingly and offered a sacrifice to the Lord and took vows. What does that mean? I don't know what it means. You know, you know what I hope it means? 
And they repented of all their sin and turned their hearts towards the one true God whom they'd experienced here and that they became faithful followers of him. That's what I hope it means, but what could, it could just mean that they offered a sacrifice and moved on with their lives. I have no idea. Verse 17 tells us what happens to Jonah. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. He just won't let him die. He won't. He won't let him have peace. And he won't let him die. Because God demands faithfulness from his servants. He demands it. And let me tell you something. God gets what he wants. Ultimately and eternally, God gets what he wants. And he is not done with Jonah. He has issued a command and he is not going to let him get away with not doing it. His prophet will not get away with this. Um, it's a very tricky thing for one man to point to another man. For one Christian to point to another Christian. And to say with any authority, this is what God wants you to do. That's a tricky thing. I don't do it. I don't. I've had people come to me over the last seven years, truthfully even before then, with help trying to figure out God's will for their life. And, and what they really want is they have oftentimes a couple of situations right in front of their faces. They don't know what to do. And they want me to choose. <laughs> or tell them. They want my opinion, at least. What do I think God wants them to do? Every once in a while, it's a clear-cut no on some things. I mean, you know, I know God doesn't want them to sin and do evil, so I can cross some things out right away, but truthfully, most of the time, it's not that simple, or else they wouldn't have come ask me because they would have known what I was going to say. It's not like that. Maybe you found yourself in that situation, too. Now, God's Word has spoken definitively to us on things that we must not do. There is sin that we must not commit. There is a way of living that we must not embrace. And God's word has spoken definitively to us on things that we must do. Part spiritually with the faithfulness to the local body of believers with whom he has blessed us and made us a part spiritually with them. He has commanded you to exercise spiritual gifts for the glory and the building up of His people. He has commanded you to give sacrificially of yourself in every way. I'm not talking money. I'm talking every way. There are things God has commanded us to do. He has commanded us to take the Lord's Supper. He has commanded us to be baptized upon salvation. He has commanded us to repent. He has commanded us to love Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. He has commanded us to love our neighbor as ourselves. But there is a wide range of possibility. In the human experience. I don't know what God wants you to do. And I'll pray for you. And I'll talk with you through it. And we can try to come to a wise decision. And you know what? I often tell people when they truly don't know what to do. I often tell people who are wrestling with something. You know, God knows that you're wrestling with this. And that you're trying to determine His will. He sees the struggle here. 
If you're up against a timeline, you've got to make a decision. Make the best decision that you think that God wants you to make. And, and then make that decision in full acknowledgement. I prayed this prayer with people. Father, I'm trying to do the right thing. If I'm wrong, turn me back around and I'll submit. I'll repent and I'll do, I'll do instead what you want me to do. I've got no pride here. I've got no personal ambition here. I'm really trying to, you know my heart, Lord. You know I'm trying to do what's right. Help me and show me if I'm not. Don't let me bring shame upon you. Those are the things that a Christian should pray to their God. But what I, what I won't do and what you shouldn't do is judge the work of another Christian. And I want to end in a, in a certain passage of Scripture here in, in 1 Corinthians. So I want you to turn with me in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 4 because this is important. Frankly, apart from this, I, I could not be a pastor. I couldn't do it. And when I lose sight of this, when I, when I lose sight of this particular passage, uh, being a pastor is often depressing to me. And uh, when I lose sight of this, being a pastor is not depressing. But if you lose sight of this, it's depressing. And I'm going to tell you that offering yourself as a living sacrifice in any endeavor will be depressing if you lose sight of this. There are two sides of this coin in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. There's one side that will encourage you and that will strengthen you if you are doing well before the Lord with all your heart. And there is another side of this that ought to terrify you and make you think of the prophet Jonah if you are not doing well. Now here it is, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, just the first few verses. Listen to what Paul writes. Let a man so consider us, Paul and his companions, as servants of Christ. Boy, that's what Jonah was, isn't it? That's what it said. And stewards of the mysteries of God. Now here's a principle. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. That's just a general principle, right? If you have a steward, somebody who's going to manage something, it's required that they be found faithful. But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I know of nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this. But he who judges me is the Lord. Now, what is Paul talking about? Is he saying, it's a small thing to be judged because of my sexual immorality by you? Is that what he's saying? No, and, and that's pretty clear because in the very next chapter, in chapter 5, he's telling them that they must judge sexual immorality. They have to judge. Look at chapter 5, verse 12. For what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? He's talking about inside the church. Uh, but those who are outside, God will judge in eternal hell, therefore put away the evil person. He's not talking about sin in chapter 4. You, you see that? When he says here, it's a small thing that I should be judged by you or a human court. He's not talking about violations of God's law, violations of God's commands. That's not what he means. He's not talking about immorality and evil. He says, but with me it's a small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court in regards to this stewardship of ministry that he's been given. In other words, a steward has to be found faithful. Let me tell you something. You, if you are a servant of God, must be found faithful. But you don't have to be found faithful by me. Or by Steve. Or even by your husband or your wife. 
or your Christian friend who really loves you. I'm not telling you you should ignore everything that they say to you. Please don't do that. But you don't have to be found faithful by us because us did not give you that stewardship. Who do you have to be found faithful by? God. But there's a flip side of this. Look at this. In fact, I do not even judge myself. Isn't that foolish? Shouldn't we look at ourselves kind of critically sometimes? Yeah, we should. That's not what he means. He means he doesn't excuse himself and tell himself he's doing a good job because verse 4, for I know of nothing against myself, but I am not justified by this. You run across people who, who say things like, you know, well, you know, I've, I'm doing a good job. I'm doing what God's called me to do. You know, be careful when you say that. How about we just live one day at a time, serving the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, trying to be who God has called us to be faithfully, sacrificially, you know, without pause, without timeouts and sabbaticals and vacations from it, trying to serve God with all our hearts. And how about we take a pause on saying, yeah, I know that I'm doing the right thing here. You don't get to give yourself a pass. God will judge your ministry. God will. Not me, not you. Sometimes people will um, be presented with a ministry opportunity and they'll be called to it and they'll be asked, hey, I, I really think you should do this. This is, a good, this is a good thing. We could use your help. You seem to be a good fit here. And they'll say, no. <laughs> it's a hard thing to hear when you have the guts to go and talk to somebody about that or you stand up and you present an opportunity. But they'll say, no. You know what? I don't get to judge that person for saying no. I don't. It's hard, not, it's, hard, it's hard not to. You have to fight that battle. But my verdict doesn't matter. I better not say a word about it to anybody else. Some of you need to learn that lesson, I think. If you think someone else isn't doing what they're supposed to because they're not working hard enough or trying hard enough, you better like that about it. It's not your servant. God's going to judge that servant. And some of us who always give the token answer, yeah, I'm just too busy, I've got too much going on, I've got too much going on. Be careful before you excuse yourself and say that that's okay. This is an everyday reality that you have to deal with yourself. Verse 4 of 1 Corinthians, we're, we're done here. For I know of nothing against myself, but I am not justified by this. Ignorance of all your failures does not make it okay. <laughs> but he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will bring both to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the heart. Then each one's praise will come from God. God will bring the counsels of your heart, whether you really presented yourself as a living sacrifice to Him and were a good steward of what He'd given you, or whether or not in your heart you chose to go your own way and do your own thing. Jonah didn't have a bunch of people in Israel condemning him for getting on a boat to go to Tarshish. As far as we could tell, he's the only one who knew he was supposed to do that. It wasn't okay. God demands obedience from his servants. And John is going to learn that lesson the hard way. Let's close with a word of prayer.
Father, we love you and we ask for your forgiveness. We ask for your forgiveness for gossip and slander. For bitterness. For jealousy. For envy. For personal ambition. All the sin that would take root inside of our hearts when we try to judge the inward parts of your servants. You will judge. And in that, those of us who are offering ourselves faithfully to you sacrificially will find joy in the words of well done, my good and faithful servant. And those of us, Father, who are not doing as we should, will stand face to face before you to give an account of it. And so, Father, let us now seek your forgiveness. There is not a Christian soul here this morning who has not neglected the calling of your Holy Spirit in his or her life. To be human is to be fallen. Forgive our rebellions. Father, we thank you that it is in your character and on full display in the book of Jonah to run down your disobedient servants. All the times you have run down my own heart. Thank you for the hedges you have put before me and behind me. The limits that you've let me go to. Help us to trust in your good character and to lean upon you for repentance and forgiveness. Father, I ask that you'll spur us all to faithful, responsible action in all of our Christian obligations and all these privileges in which we can serve you. And help us never to rebel as Jonah does here. When we do, bring about full repentance and not this ambivalent self-sacrifice that leads to nothing more than despair. Help us to be thrown back into the work of your kingdom and not into the middle of an ocean. We thank you for your great faithfulness to us. We thank you that we cannot flee from your presence. We thank you that as quickly as we would rebel against you, you are not a father who disowns your children. Now, Father, take these tithes and offerings and use them for your kingdom. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.